happy St. Patty's Day, everybody. I hope you guys have a safe time out there. Don't get too drunk and don't get too wild. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends. It's good to see you made it back for another episode. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true St. Patrick's Day stories. These ones are pretty creepy, and I think you're going to enjoy them. Joining me today is my good friend, Southern Cannibal. If you enjoy his voice, be sure to check out his channel. The link will be in the description down below. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. Now, let's get into these creepy and allegedly true St. Patrick's Day Horror Stories. So this happened when I was 12. I'm now 21 years old now. My mom had just finished photography school, so she was giving her first photo expo in a bar in the most centric part of town. It was kind of far from where I lived at the time, so it was also my first night out in a bar. The thing was, my mom did not realize that it was also St. Patrick's Day, so the place was packed with drunk 20-year-olds. I knew I was going to get bored, so I brought my then best friend along with me, who was the same age. So, sometime around 1am, we were drinking coke in the bar of the complex when three guys approached us. They start talking to us, making trivial conversation. Nothing weird at first. We innocent little girls thought they were just being nice. Then they started asking some rather odd questions. They were asking us what we were drinking, how old we were, our names and where we lived. We told them that we were both 12 and they seemingly got very excited. So they start complimenting us a lot more all of a sudden, saying that we looked older, 21 at least, and we easily did not. We looked 15 at the most. They were telling us that we had women's bodies and were pretty for our age, and insisting on buying us drinks and taking us dancing. There was a dancing floor on the upper level. Now, I remember feeling flattered, but also scared and anxious. I had just had my first kiss like a month ago, so the idea of dancing with some older guy made me very anxious. My friend wanted to go with them. I got close to her and whispered that they were making me nervous. That is when I noticed my dad looking our way. When we got to him, he asked us who those guys were. And I just told him they asked us if the seats were taken, because I thought he would be mad if they were flirting with us. The night went on, and at approximately 3am, my friend and I went out to hang out in the car, because it was much quieter out there. As we got in the car, we heard two guys fighting. One of them was the same guy who was talking to me. I'll just call him the pervert. I don't know where the other two are gone at that point. The other guy takes a bottle and breaks it on the pervert's head knocking him out. There was blood everywhere, and the guy was on the floor bleeding, but I don't think he was dead or anything. The police came and got him, and arrested the two of them eventually. Finally, my parents got in the car with us, and they told us that the pervert had been insisting and touching the other guy's girlfriend against her will. We went home, and we never heard about those guys ever again. It 
It is March 17th, 2019, St. Patrick's Day, in Cooktown, County Tyrone, United Kingdom. 17-year-old Lauren Bullock is getting ready to go to a party. She and her group of friends had spent their entire school day in increasing levels of excitement, swapping ideas of what to wear, exchanging rumors on who would and would not be attending, and most importantly, scheming on how to get their hands on the most quintessential of all St. Patrick's Day amenities, booze. No Patty's Day party is complete without an unhealthy quantity of the demon drink, as any self-respecting Irishman will tell you. And for the underage Lauren, buying alcohol would be as easy as putting on a little extra makeup and standing on her tippy toes at the counter. After all, without the telltale school tie, extraordinarily little separates the appearance of a student and a fledgling office worker. Lauren and her friends finished their studies for the day before congregating in one of their parents' houses to prepare for the night's festivities. Outfits were road-tested, makeup applied, and the girls even sampled a little of their alcohol haul to get healthy pre-drunk before they departed. When the time came, they piled into a waiting taxi cab, which drove them a few miles down the road to Greenvale Hotel. The sight that greeted them was one of utter chaos. The Greenvale Hotel on the outskirts of Cookstown had decided to throw a Patty's Day dry disco for the local youth. Underage drinking is a huge problem in the UK in general, let alone in Northern Ireland, where alcohol is seen as a staunch tradition, even a rite of passage if you will. If parents knew where their children were on one of the rowdiest nights of the year, it belayed their fears, even if they understood how inevitable it was that someone would get their hands on alcohol. The popularity of such an event would be evident to Lauren and her friends upon their arrival at the Greenvale Place. For outside the venue, that had a maximum capacity of just a hundred or so, at least five to six hundred excitable Irish young people had assembled and were waiting to be allowed inside. Such a ruckus scene might have been off-putting to other group of girls, but not Lauren and her friends. They found the huge gathering of their peers to be intensely exciting and attractive. Rural Ireland can be an extremely tedious place to live for a young person, lacking in all the adventure and attractions of the big city. So any opportunity to mingle with large groups of their peers outside of school hours is something very few Irish teenagers can pass up. Lauren and her friends climbed out of the taxi into a cold and windy evening to socialize with all of their friends and make a few new ones in the process. Meanwhile, inside the Greenvale Hotel, the management team is in a quandary. They knew all too well that there were way too many youths outside and that not all of them could be let into the venue. However, St. Patrick's Day was a serious earner for the hotel. After a traditionally quiet January and February, St. Paddy's Day always kickstarted the local community and economy in a big way. To limit their patrons during such an event would surely be inviting financial ruin, but something had to be done to avoid disappointing more than half of the young people that gathered outside. The general manager of the venue made the decision to go outside to address the waiting revelers. He told them in no uncertain terms that Greenvale simply did not have the facilities to accommodate so many of them, and some of them would have to go home disappointed. He then asked all the youth to form an orderly queue at the entrance, where staff would take their entrance fee and stamp their hands with black ink to verify them. 
that is when things started to go very wrong. As I previously mentioned, a long-standing tradition in the UK and elsewhere is to imbibe alcohol before arrival at a pub, club, or party to get a head start and to save a little money. The same applied to the gathering of underage youths inside the Greenvale that night. So instead of doing as they were asked and forming an orderly queue at the entranceway, what started calmly had soon descended into a chaotic mess of shoving, shouting, and fighting. Hotel staff pleaded with the drunken crowds to calm themselves, but their cries were barely heard over the throngs of barking teenagers, some who had begun to shove their peers toward the waiting line. Lauren was one of those who had rushed the queue up first and began to feel herself being trapped against one of the Greenvale's outer walls. She tried to push back to give herself a little personal space, but it was impossible. No matter how hard she and her friends shoved back, the crowd did not seem to disperse or diffuse. It was not long before neither Lauren nor her friends could move. Their arms were trapped by their sides, their bodies squeezed and compressed until some began to complain about feeling faint. Lauren was being crushed against the brick wall, finding it harder and harder to breathe as the crowds formed tighter and tighter around her. At one point, she saw a young man with glasses so pale he almost was white as a sheet, collapsed from the lack of oxygen available to him. This was barely noticed by the pushing crowds, who simply walked over and stepped on the unconscious boy, crushing him to death beneath their feet with nothing else in their minds but the desire to drink, dance, and flirt. With the very last of her strength, Lauren began to shout and yell, My friends are on the ground! Move back! My friends have fainted! Move back! My friends can't breathe! Move back! Nothing. Not one bit of movement or compassion. In fact, one of the last things Lauren ever saw before she passed out was the sight of laughing, spotty-faced teenage boys amusing themselves by pushing the crowd towards the doors, trying to get them inside so that they could start drinking. A horrific sight to see in the moments before unconsciousness, but Lauren would not just be rendered a conscious. The crush at the Greenvale Hotel that night went on for about a half hour. By the time the crowd realized what was happening, it was far too late. Lauren, along with several other teenagers, had been suffocated in the crush. Nigel Ruddell, the medical director of Northern Ireland's ambulance service, told the BBC that the emergency crews who responded to a 999 call shortly before 9.30pm encountered upsetting scenes. At this stage, everything points toward it being a tragic accident, and our hearts absolutely go out to the families of those involved and everybody who was caught up in this incident last night, he said. Yet the tragedy seems to have been painted by the media as a seemingly unavoidable one, an incident as sudden and shocking as a terror attack or a natural disaster. But there was nothing natural about the deaths at the Greenvale Hotel that night, as they had been entirely avoidable. In fact, the fact remains that poor planning, drug use, and youthful zeal had proved a deadly cocktail. And without admitting anything, things like that will continue to happen again and again. For some context, I'm a female and at the time I was 19 years old. I was living in a central flat with my older sister. We were out this one weekend night celebrating St. Patrick's Day. It was me, my sister, and a few friends. 
We started out having pints at an Irish pub, then soon we'd moved on to a popular hotel bar. I was a bit tipsy at this point, so I decided to switch to water as I had work really early the next morning. We were having a really great time and nothing really seemed out of the ordinary, but I decided anyway that I'd go ahead and head home due to my early start the next day. Anyway, I said goodbye to my friends and I headed out into the nice clear evening. I walked a couple of blocks and I went to a 7-Eleven on the corner to go buy a bottle of juice. There's always some semi-sketchy types hanging around on that street corner. That's usually where cab drivers tend to hang around waiting for customers, so I didn't pay much attention to any of them. I exited the shop, then turned the corner to an empty street. I then hear footsteps behind me. I look behind and it's a pretty big guy, seemingly advancing right on me. I lifted my phone from my pocket and dialed 911 without pressing the call button. I then crossed the street to see if he would follow me, which he immediately did. I was heading in a direction immediately away from the shops, and I couldn't turn around without ending up face to face with them. Oh shit. I turned on another street corner right towards my door. It's really important to note that this house didn't have a front door key. It was a four-digit passcode that granted access to the building, and then you'd have to open your own door with your key. The only thing I can think of is, don't let him see the code. If he sees the code, you're dead. This type of sentence started pulsating in my mind, and I started running, in stiletto heels. He too is picking up the pace, and he's running after me. At this point, I'm not really feeling anything. It was so strange. It was like I had the actions laid out in front of me. I had to outrun him and reach my door before he did. There was no option. As I made it to the door, I covered the keypad with my hand before hurriedly punching in the code. He didn't catch it. Nevertheless though, he's trying to forcibly push his way in. I've often wondered how exactly I'd react in a situation like this. You never really know until you're actually exposed. Well apparently I get angry. I started shouting at him to get the fuck away, etc. He responds with laughter, then saying, No way, you know I live here too. So I ask him for the passcode and he's trying to laugh it off and keeps pushing me in. I remember that I still had a sturdy grip on my phone and I had showed him the screen where I had keyed in 911 triumphantly. I kept shouting abuse and that he really needed to leave or I'd call. Thankfully, he got a terrified expression on his face and then ran. On shaky legs, I managed to get into the lift, into my flat, and then secured the door for what felt like a thousand times. I called my sister at first. No answer. I called my boyfriend, panicking. He hadn't been out with us that night. He too was laughing it off. He told me that it was probably just some guy that fainted me and decided to fool around a bit. I wasn't convinced and I barely slept that night. I told my sister the next morning after she asked me about all those missed calls. My sister told me at that point that she got a really weird vibe from the guy sitting across the bar. That he was staring at us. We compared descriptions and they seemed to match. She didn't remember seeing him at all after I left. I still sometimes wonder if something serious could have happened and just how strange it was that my mind fixated completely on the passcode.
some living arrangements can be unusual to say the least, and renting on-site at a storage facility is quite different than living in a regular apartment. My uncommon living area connects to the storage facility by a long, dark cold hallway from a door in what we would call our porch area, and every night, I must walk past this door to get into my apartment. When my wife and I go to bed at the same time, I do not notice it. But when she goes to sleep before me, and the house is dark and quiet, acute anxiety grips me as I quickly patter down the hallway to my bedroom. Something about that doorway to the storage facility feels ominous. Always has. A small peephole is in the door, and sometimes I imagine looking through it at night, only to see something or someone in the hallway on the other side. One night last year, in the weeks leading up to St. Patrick's Day, strange events began to unfold. At first, we did not really notice anything too weird, mainly because of the places customers are in and out of the facility at all hours of day and night, not to mention the fact that there can just turn out to be some strange folks when all of this is said and done. Anyway, at first it was just like things like my toolbox going missing and reappearing broken or a small pile of leaves being left in front of my wife's office door. We figured it was just bored teenagers, maybe even a drunk stumbling home from a speakeasy around the corner. But then, things were starting to get more... odd. We awoke one morning with the bedroom windows open when we did not remember opening them the night before. A quick inventory of our belongings showed that nothing had been stolen. But when we filed a police report for what was apparently an attempted burglary, one night, at around 4 a.m., our bedroom lights began wildly turning on and off, waking us up. Then it stopped just as quickly as it began. We put it down to electrical faultiness and made a mental note to call the landlord. But the very next morning, we found the bathroom mirror was shattered, and in the living room, all the furniture was stacked into a big pile. The night before St. Patrick's Day, I really did not want to be home alone. Rosa, my wife, had to work late. So unfortunately, I really did not have a choice. We were both on edge at this point from the events of the previous days and nights, and we were constantly snapping at each other from a lack of sleep. Thankfully, I had to work too and was able to get away from the apartment for a few hours, but I dreaded returning home. When I finally did so, Rosa was still at work. I gave her a call to see how she was doing and she seemed stressed. It was a busy day and she had been forced to take on a lot of extra paperwork but she assured me that she would be done as soon as she could. The moment I walked through the front door, it felt like someone was watching me. I also noticed that it was absolutely freezing inside, even though it had been nice outside that day. I checked the windows to see if they were inexplicably open again, but they were closed. Then, I walked down the hall towards the porch and found the source of the cold. The door connecting our apartment to the facility was wide open, and a draft was coming in from the dark hallway. I closed the door, concerned with how it had gotten open, because we always kept it locked tight. After Rosa got in from the office, things began to get weirder. She was just as shocked as I was to learn the door in the porch area was open when I came home, but she had some news for me too. While I was at work, apparently the power had been going off and on all day, despite near-perfect weather. We had ended up purchasing one of those home CCTV systems you link up to your tablet device. Rosa had been watching the feed of the security cameras and said that she had seen someone walking around the facility 
and whoever came through the front gate is who opened the door. As she was telling me all these strange things that happened that day, the door to the facility hallway slammed open by itself. We slowly approached the door to see who had opened it, but no one was there. We locked the door to the hallway again. The house was eerily quiet as we did so. It was then we began to hear a faint sound coming from the storage facility. It sounded like a dozen voices, all talking or singing in unison. Whoever it was, it had to be the same group of people that had been basically terrorizing us for weeks at this point. For whatever reason, we decided to confront them, and this may have been the biggest mistake we ever made. We headed over to the storage area the noises seemed to be coming from, banging on the metal door as loud as I could to gain their attention. Slowly, the door was opened before us. There, standing on the table, were three short figures with masks on their faces. We could not tell if they were kids or grown-ups with dwarfism, but surrounding them were taller, more interesting-looking figures, who also wore masks to conceal their faces. The three smaller people on the table were the ones doing the singing, only it sounded a lot more like chanting in some old language. Now that we were so close, as soon as they realized we were not invited, that we were not who they were expecting... The chanting stopped and all the mass turned to face us. It was only then that we saw a mass of blood and gore on the table in the center of the smaller figures. I only saw it for a moment before the door slammed shut again, but to this day, I have not been able to get it out of my mind. I still remember the smell that came from that room, the raw meat smell. It makes me sick to this day. We ran back into our apartment, locking the door behind us and immediately calling the cops. We struggled to relay just what we had seen, insisting that they just had to hurry, as we suspected that there were children at risk. But when they arrived, we could no longer hear the chanting sound coming from the storage facility. I was hardly surprised when the cops forced their way inside and found no one present. But what really confused me is that there was not a single trace of blood that we had seen. The cops told us that the forensic teams combed the facility and could not find a single fiber or a fingerprint to corroborate our story. Not long after we moved. It was awfully disappointing. We were practically living rent-free in that apartment, but when it came down to the horror we had experienced that night, money was no issue. I would have paid double what we are paying now just for peace of mind, because I never, ever want to run into those people again, because of another encounter, and I do not think things will go away so safely. I did not know much about St. Patrick's Day when I first moved to America. I was familiar with American culture, sure, and growing up in Hokkaido in Japan, I was vaguely aware that St. Patrick's Day existed, but I had no idea that it was taken so seriously by Irish Americans. So my first March 17th as a student at Boston University was certainly an eye-opener. I remember waking up that morning like it was any other. I threw on some clothes, ate some small breakfast, then headed out to Boston Common to catch the tea to the university library. Almost everyone I saw had some sort of item of green clothing. Even smartly dressed businessmen had a little green pocket square or wore four-leaf clover pins. I saw big groups of kilted men with those noisy bag things and even people dressed as small, red-haired creatures. 
though I could not remember the word of them. Yet, I could barely believe my eyes when I saw the Charles River. Somehow, some way, the city managed to dye the entire thing a bright green. Everything seemed to be bigger and louder in America, unlike Japan, where we almost pride ourselves on not showing too much emotion. I was reflecting on this for a moment as the tea stopped and took on some more passengers. But as one man embarked on the train, he immediately looked and locked eyes with me. I said a silent prayer that he would leave me alone, but it was wishful thinking he had already given me the kind of look that many girls dread. That kind of look that a cat might give a wounded mouse. Then, to my ultimate disappointment, he sat down next to me. He reeked of alcohol, so much that I had to subtly cover my nose to keep from feeling nauseous. I did not drink alcohol back then, and I still rarely do. The smell still makes me feel sickly, even to this day. So I simply put my earphones in and tried to keep to myself as the tea started moving again. A few minutes would go by, and I would feel the man turning toward me before the muffled sound of him saying something to me could be heard through my earbuds. I tried to ignore him as best as I could, but the man began to poke me in the arm to get my attention. I could not ignore him anymore so I took out my earphones and asked him if I could help him in any way. Why aren't you wearing green? He asked me, slurring his words as he did so. At first, I had no idea what he was talking about, but I quickly remembered that wearing green clothing seemed to be a sort of tradition among locals on this date. Yet still, I did not wish to engage with the man, so I might have lied just a little to get him off my back. I, uh, I don't, uh, speak uh, English, I said, pretending to be ignorant. I thought this might deter the man. It was not the first time I had to pretend to not speak English to avoid a man's attention, and usually it worked. Not this time. He said, Why aren't you wearing green? He spoke much louder now, punctuating his final word by grabbing the sleeve of his own green pullover and waving it in my face. As he leaned in, Another wave of his alcohol-soaked breath wafted into my nostrils. I could not bring myself to answer him. I thought if I tried to speak, I might just vomit up my breakfast. So I simply shrugged at him, as if I did not understand, then tried to go back to my phone. That is when I felt an intense pain on my left arm. I cried out, shifting in my seat and turning to see that the drunk man had pinched me. He was laughing as he did it too, with a little drool catching on his bottom lip before running down his chin. You don't wear green, you get pinched, he said, still giggling to himself. Other people on the tee noticed, and some were looking outraged that this drunk man was treating me this way. Please don't, I managed to say, holding the part of my arm where the man had pinched me, but this only seemed to make him angry. By the time I had jumped up from the seat to move away from him, other passengers on the train were angrily shouting at the man to leave me alone. People in Boston are very friendly especially the foreigners like me. And as I got off the train a few stops early, I decided not to let this experience tarnish the city's image in my eyes. After a long day of studying, I was headed back to my apartment in an Uber taxi when I got a text from a few friends. They told me they were having a few drinks in the big Irish bar near the government center. I forgot the name of it, but they asked if I would like to join them for some green beer. I'd never heard of green beer before, but they insisted that this was a big tradition in America. I was not entirely in the mood for drinking, but I did like the idea of seeing some of the parties, especially since it had only happened once a year. If the beer and the river were green, 
what else had Boston changed the color of? I had to find out. So I arrived back at my apartment, rushing upstairs to take a shower and changing my clothes. This time I tried to find something green to wear, only to find that I actually did not own anything distinctly green. I had a turquoise t-shirt, but that was about as green as it got. I texted my friend again, but she reassured me I could borrow the green scrunchie she had on her wrist. That way, I could be safe from more pinching men, hopefully. But as I began to walk around to the Irish bar, which was no more than 5 or 10 minutes from my apartment, I happened to walk by a tea station, standing outside it was the last person I ever wanted to see. It was that same drunk man from the morning, with a brown paper bag in his hand. He had obviously been drinking since the exceedingly early morning hours, and he looked even worse than he did on the train. I hoped that he would be too drunk to see me or even recognize me, but to my complete and utter horror, I saw a flash of recognition in his eyes. He shouted after me, and I tried to walk faster to avoid him, but it was almost impossible. His rude, racist shouts became even louder. He started to run after me. I had tears in my eyes as I ran down the sidewalk trying to get away from him. I ran to the first police officer I saw, bursting into tears as I fell into his arms. I tried to explain what was going on, but I was panicking so much, and when I turned to point the man who was following me was no longer there. Only happy, friendly partygoers, no sign of the drunk. Awful man. The police walked me back to my apartment. He was very, very friendly and understanding, especially since I was so upset that my English had failed me. Most people in Boston are genuinely nice and friendly, as I said, but some not so much, especially when alcohol is involved. I sometimes think the world would be quite a different place if people did not drink. Anyways, stay safe on St. Patty's Day. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true St. Patrick's Day horror stories. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button, as the more likes this gets, the more YouTube promotes it in the algorithm, and that helps the channel grow here. If you're listening to this on iTunes or another podcast platform, please give this a 5-star rating, as that helps us grow over there. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Hit the subscribe button, and be sure to turn on notifications to never miss a new video, as I upload them almost every single day, on everything natural and supernatural. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future video, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that truly help keep this show going on a daily basis. Much love and appreciation to my good friend and my southern brother from another mother, Southern Cannibal. He helped me read story number three today, and if you enjoyed his voice, please be sure to check out his channel. He recently hit 100,000 subscribers, and that's super awesome. Definitely go show him some love and celebrate with him over there. If you guys would like to support the channel outside of hitting that like button and subscribing, check out the merch store. I have everything from face masks, t-shirts, hoodies, and more. If you're on the go, but still want to listen and keep up to date with your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories, be sure to download them absolutely free from iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and just about everywhere else you find your favorite podcast. And like I said, it's absolutely free to do so, and always will be. Thank you guys so much for the support. I'll see you guys soon with another creepy video.